We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle people that make it occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I am I am so delighted to be with you here today. It's a beautiful, glorious day northern california this is my new my new place of residence i'm broadcasting from my new offices because i've got a new role at founders fund which you've probably heard about but you know what i'm not the most important person on this podcast and or at least to the extent i am there are other people and i want to be gracious and magnanimous (laughs) because i'm famous for that um michael moynihan is here matt welch is here and i mean you see a lot of those guys or at least hear a lot of those guys so i also want to talk about someone else who's here the incredible, remarkable, incomparable Mike Pesca is also joining us incompetent. Today, rounding out our <laughs> force. That's what makes me and, incomparable. Uh, they can't believe my lack between, of confidence. Yeah. Incompetence, yeah. The thin and, line between clever and stupid. <laughs> and there's so many things for us to talk about. This is the day after uh, the RNC primary debate, which did not include uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who instead appeared on Tucker Carlson's show, which is broadcast via X, which is weird. It's just, just I'm never used to it. Don't, don't, <laughs> Staple don't. Center. Tucker Fall on Twitter, it. you know, yes, has the whole exactly. thing, but whatever. The Boston Garden. Um, and today, today, <laughs> we, are, we are waiting <laughs> on President Trump to show up um, so that he can be booked uh, in Georgia on what is, I believe this is the fourth indictment, correct? Yeah. You lose mm-hmm. track after a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump and a legion of his supporters are all being indicted um, in res- with respect to a RICO thing, which, you know, Georgia's got a thing for the RICO. We should talk mm-hmm. about that is what it is. Um, so we're going to get into all of that stuff. And I'm very excited about it. Before we get there, I do want to begin by honoring my friend and comrade, Michael Moynihan. It is his birthday. And he, he has joined us on his And I birthday. show up for work on my yes, birthday. Yes, yes. Yeah. He's taken a break from the, from I can only imagine. excessively. The grotesque, the grotesque celebration. I mean, it is the sort of thing that Caligula, Caligula um, is the only person who could rival the, yeah. the kind of gross oh, no, I had a horse. things that I'm sure are taken care of. <laughs> oh, did you have a horse? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. free pony rides for my birthday. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Well, you deserve it, Michael Moynihan. Congratulations well, to thank you, you on Camille, achieving this milestone. That. 72 it's years old 72 today. Years old. Yeah, it's I should amazing. be running for president. Yeah. I'm so it old. is yeah. amazing. Not old you should. Yeah. You should. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the principal qualification is that you can't remember anything or stay awake during. Well, a what event. my plan is, I just decided this is my plan right now, is that yeah. after this podcast, because I'll probably make an early exit because I have dinner plans. Um, is to get my own mugshot today. Oh. In the, kind of my, you know, the Meadows, Giuliani, kind of, you know, bent in a little bit, looking you kind can of do quizzically. It. And yeah. by the way, didn't, no one in those mugshots decided to really, you know, do the big smile and the thumb, you know, just to, to really Tom delay it. it up. Yeah, to Tom delay it. You got to delay it. I mean, I mean, delay it, but delay it. You know, uh, Rick Rick so Perry I, also. Did had you a see that? Did you like? Uh, there's a did Rick Perry had a gun? yeah. There was a a pretty yeah. decent Twitter thread of uh, great mugshots, political mugshots throughout the years, and the thesis was that hmm. if you're out there smiling, looking confident, you're going to get off. Like, uh, you know, there yeah, was a, yeah, definitely yeah. a rule of three situation with... What, was there a Larry Craig? I mean, speaking of getting off, he got <laughs> off, but he I don't know if he got off. There's, the, there's, there's definitely a Larry King. Have you ever heard, seen that oh, one? No. Look up the Larry, Larry King mugshot. It's what excellent. What did he do? 
Besides entertain America. Yeah. What was that's right. <laughs> was too many, too many Sandy Koufax <laughs> anecdotes that never checked out. Yeah. The long arm of the ex-Dodgers. <laughs> the long that left-handed arm. Crazy <laughs> mug shot. Oh, that's wow, you amazing. looked it up? Okay. Text, I have to actually do this in, in wow. real time. No, I'm going to do it because uh, it's a pretty... Yeah. Quick one. Oh my God. Look charged, at that. Charged with grand larceny, apparently smuggling things inside those Guilty. mutton chops. Yeah. Look at that. Look, that's am amazing. He looks like the bass player from Canned Heat. Look at his back. That's actually Larry King. I mean, looking, looking at that mugshot, though, is there any crime that you can imagine he didn't commit? Yeah. Like, seriously, he oh, just yes. looks guilty yes. as hell. Yeah, no, that wow. was that is the most sex criminal mugshot I've ever seen. <laughs> by the way, was it something? Um, what oh was the gosh. charge? It was grand larceny. Uh, I don't know. Well, I guess I guess he won because the statute of limitations ran out. One thing about Larry Cra uh, Larry King, he will outlast us all in every <laughs> means. <laughs> well, Larry Craig Almost. is still alive. Yeah, I think, right. <laughs> we, he, I think we defended him on the in Minneapolis airport. We should, yeah. yes. we should get him on. Yes, we defended him. Yeah, we defended him. I think we're the only people to have ever defended him because love as wins. vigorously as we yeah. did. <laughs> as that the wide stance was simply just a wide stance, or it's fine. No, if you he should to be able that. to try to fuck guys in the bathroom. Gotcha. I mean, come on. Yeah. I believe right. in freedom, Mike right. Baskin. What did George right. Michael sing? This is saying about freedom. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Freedom to go into a park and, yeah. and take it out. Yeah. And you know what? That's a question that should have been asked by Martha McCallum last night instead of, to go back to Larry instead Craig. Instead of UFOs? Yeah. Uh, I will say, oh, yeah. Larry King. Oh, angry God. response. Larry yeah. King is one of the only uh, like uh, uh, celebrity people who I've seen in real life who I could not, like, I changed my entire uh, opinion of just by the way he walks. Um, the Larry King or Larry Craig? King, believe it or not. Okay. Was at the uh, I think yeah. 2004 because uh, Craig walks with a bit of a white stance. Democratic <laughs> convention in Boston, which I think is my first time to the capital of Massholia, which is just I stayed in Southie. It was it was grim, um, exactly. <laughs> uh, As you should. But he yeah. like sashayed down the hall. He was doing a back <laughs> arm swing like a speed skater, <laughs> yeah. and he had like a ducktail thing going on. And you're like, oh shit! Oh, so that was this but, dude but, was but, a but, greaser. But we're talking about Boston. That was 2004. 2004. Right? Um, and yeah, he's still that, like, well, you he know, hello. That he's still yeah. that guy and he's old, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. he obviously like was tapping into some kind of like street hood, uh, and like yeah. a cock of the walk thing. Uh, I just had, I always loved him cause I grew up listening to his four hour, a weeknight radio show, uh, sure. exactly telling those Sandy Kovac stories and talking about kayaking. Um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but after seeing him, uh, sachet, Bob Gibson. Whew, yeah, yes. Hohokus, New Jersey. You say what? <laughs> and we'll Before be back we get into in the, the, for the, the full hour the, with Miss Piggy. <laughs> yes, it's the best. The full hour. I, before we uh, uh, get into that, I want to say that you definitely should look this up because we did look up the Larry King mugshot. Do look up Norm Macdonald's brilliant appearance with Larry uh, King when he says. Uh, I am a, a very, very closeted homosexual. <laughs> and he's like, what are you telling me here? He's like, I'm not telling you anything. I'm very closeted. <laughs> and he's like, you're, you're, you're saying something on live television? No, he's like, I'm not saying anything. What are you talking about? I'm very, very closeted. <laughs> and it completely baffles Larry King for about five minutes. It's absolutely worth uh, the click. So <laughs> That's great. So anyway, I, the, the, I didn't watch it live last night. The debate. Because I, I was out doing something. Uh, slightly more fun, mm. and but I did watch it today. Yeah, 
And it, I had the really weird thing where I, before I watched it, I did see these various polls, and I think there were probably bullshit online polls mm-hmm. of who won and, and who lost. And um, beyond thinking that America lost last night watching it, <laughs> is that I, I don't, like, you know, Christie had 2%. He was very low. And I, I, I want to go, like, full Doug Burgum. Because I didn't even recognize him. I was like, who the fuck is that guy? Is he like bringing them water? And it was Tom Burgum, who almost didn't make it because of uh, he was shooting th- three-pointers and like twisted his knee or something. Wasn't that what yeah. happened? But any, think, who did yeah. you guys think when, when you saw, like, did you think anyone did well? Well, anyone? I, I think, th- th- said, I think, oh, I think pretty good. Doug, Doug actually did pretty good by, for himself, faking an injury so that he could get talked <laughs> yeah. about in the media. Is a great strategy there. <laughs> yeah, this is James Harden. He, who knew <laughs> yeah. he would take a play out of the fat suit. Carl Anthony yeah. Towns' playbook? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's oh my god the the two ways of looking at it, especially when you acknowledge that which most journalists don't, but that um, this isn't for us. Certainly, I mean, I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to vote for the primary. I don't want really any of them to win or be the president. Um, So there's that. Uh, But so there's there's the person that you think won because you liked what he or she said uh, more than the others and came off decently well. And then there's the one that played the room correctly, even though you wanted to punch him in his pearly white teeth. So uh, that's a way of saying. <laughs> you be talking about uh, you anti-Indian racist. No, uh, Vivek <laughs> cleaned up. He absolutely made it about him, um, as absolutely predicted by Matt Welch on the Megyn Kelly show. I would uh, I'd like to point out and point people in that direction uh, that he was going to troll people. Um, he was going to pick uh, fights and outrage people um, and then get uh, Mike Pence's all dudgeon all up. And uh, and he got it. You know, Matt, I got to say you were right, but that's not like predicting 9-11. I mean, that was a pretty, <laughs> true. That was a pretty easy prediction. But, I mean, the, to, to the extent that it was really about him for about uh, two thirds of it, like people were yeah. responding to terms that he had created and outrages that he had planted on it. And he got more time than anybody else. There's more Google mm-hmm. search terms for him after uh, anyone else, the bullshit online polls. He's either one or first or second. The little focus groups all pointed towards him. Dude cleaned up. Um, he played the Republican electorate and the field and the media and mainstream normal politicians uh, like a fiddle because that's just where the Republican Party is at right now, which is, a, for me, a terrible place. So I take no joy in this. But um, but he tactically uh, did fantastic, I thought. Huh. Um, I think Mike Pence actually spoke the most. It just seems like he spoke the least because of <laughs> long pauses. I have a theory about Mike Pence. He doesn't really talk like that because no one does. It's all an act, the steely eyed, and that is why. And Jesus, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to say yeah. Jesus a lot. I thought I agree. I agree. It was a vague. He said, quake. "Jesus, my Lord and Savior," is it, yeah. which is the version of saying uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. But I don't, I don't want to miss that, Mike. You said a Vivek quake. Vivek quake. It is yes. Vivek, and it was a quake. <laughs> yeah. And okay. he's on it. He's just like Trump. He's unencumbered by actually knowing anything. I think Vivek could know <laughs> things, so maybe he's a little smarter. But the question is, okay, what do the people want to hear? I'm going to say that. Or wait, everyone. There are seven other people who could speak, but right now they're not being called on because they're all saying they essentially agree in global warming. Hell, I disagree. No global warming. I'll say it. I'll make yeah. the case. And they're going to put clips back to back where couple months ago, he said, mm-hmm. well, of course, global warming's real. And yesterday, it seemed like he was saying, no, it's a hoax. He actually said 
the global is warming agenda, agenda yes, is a hoax. Is that what yeah. yeah, more people have been hurt by yes. what we've done to ameliorate global warming than global warming, which is not true and I don't agree with, but that's kind of the thing that will probably play among the electorate. And the, I mean, the only limitation, the only, the only cap, well, maybe there'll be some racism and no one's really done the oppo on him, but his entire theory of the case is, Vote for me, I'm almost like Donald Trump. That could mm-hmm. work if there weren't a situation with Donald Trump Donald in Trump. it. Yes, no. yes. <laughs> so it's like St. Peter saying, uh, vote for me uh, instead of Jesus as first pope. He can't yeah. do yeah. it. The yeah. thought probably it, occurred it did, to St. Peter, did. I should point out. <laughs> That's right. He was, he was very It did seem to me, though, that Vivek was obviously the greatest beneficiary of Trump's absence last night. I I Mm -hmm. think it would be very hard for him to have done exactly the same things and said the same things, um, perhaps being quite so obsequiously obsessed with Donald Trump and promoting him in some different way, in indirect ways. You can't do that if you're standing right next to the man. I think that would have come off a little badly. So that worked really well for him. Um, But there was a moment, and I don't know if you guys caught it, where Vivek was getting additional time. And I think he was involved in a back and forth with either Nikki or Christie at that point, maybe even Pence. And the crowd kind of booed because he was getting another opportunity to respond. So in that respect, I think he kind of over-engineered um, the, the debate, ensuring that people were coming after him, giving himself extra time to talk. There is mm-hmm. a, a threshold you don't want to pass. And if I think you're named, you get to, to talk. Do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it was a definitely a WWE audience. Yeah. I mean, that's the first time I've seen a, a, a moderator as uh, Brett Baer swung around in his chair yeah. and admonished <laughs> the audience, that's the right. Milwaukee audience. Yeah. I mean, the Wisconsin people are like, oh my God, fucking Vivek, <laughs> who's that guy? And said, you know, please, please shut up. But I guess, I don't know if it's because you know you have no chance. Um, because when you know you have no chance, you have two ways of going. You just go balls out, I don't give a shit, in one, in the totally bananas crazy way, and say, well, it kind of worked for Trump, let's see if it if it gets a little traction for me. Or you are sort of honest about what's horrible about the Republican Party, and that was Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley did fairly well at that when everyone's talking about spending and how, oh, it's so horrible. And she's like, you do realize that Democrats proposed 2.1 or 3 billion. Republicans are up in the 8 billion Uh region for just stupid pork projects. And you guys are the problem. Yeah. And then on abortion, uh, she, you know, gave a pretty Pretty solid answer. answer. It was like, no, this is actually crazy. And the reason we're winning these, uh, losing these kind of six or eight referenda at this point uh, is because people don't like this. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about, you know, how women deal with this, et cetera. And nobody else, of course, all the other men on the stage, were not going to say anything (laughs) like that. So she, you know, and that was kind of lukewarm uh, uh, applause. And that's not what you do in a primary. So I was actually kind of impressed by her, by actually sticking to her guns and saying things that were incredibly unpopular in the room and amongst the primary. And well, she yeah, made she the electability, saying- the electability argument as well. I, I, and maybe, maybe I can, I can push this to you guys. Cause I want to disagree with you a little bit, Matt. I mean, I think last night was generally a pretty good sign for the Republican party, given where they have been. They've been in thrall of Donald Trump under this long shadow for a while. The notion of them having this high-profile debate that was watched by some people, including us, and for Donald Trump to not be center stage, even though he wasn't there, we, I would have expected him to be a little bit more prominently featured. There was robust disagreement amongst these candidates 
about the different things they were talking about. And it did give one a sense that there could be a kind of post-Trump republicanism and it might get here sooner than we expect. I don't know how likely that is to be true, but at a minimum, it kind of sort of looked like it for a little bit there. Um, is is anybody else going to be willing to buy that? No. The way that right. uh, the thing that bolsters it, um, and this is the genuine surprise to me, is that 11 million people uh, turned on their TV sets last night, which is almost four times as many watched Trump's CNN town hall. Um, mm-hmm. That was surprising to me. I thought that like with him not there and uh, Tucker Carlson counterprogramming on Twitter, as it is called, um, that uh, that people would not watch, but they did. So that in itself was interesting. Um, what I don't see is, <clears throat> I think the the future of the of successful candidates in the Republican Party, successful national presidential candidates in the Republican Party, which uh, I should stress is different than um, who are actually Republicans who are governors and mayors and and have the boring jobs. Those Republicans are not necessarily super Trumpy out there in the world. And the differences that they have on policy um, uh, from Democrats and from Trump, too, are pretty profound and interesting. And uh, it, since we over-federalize and nationalize every way, all the way that we think and talk about politics, that gets lost. And I think there's no accident that um, the person who still, despite losing half of his support so far uh, during this campaign, is in the best position um, to challenge Trump is Ron DeSantis, this is a guy who was a governor who had a record, has a record to uh, campaign on that can resonate with him. But you saw there was a moment, and I guess a lot of people are making fun of Vivek for this, uh, when uh, DeSantis was doing a little wishy-washy answer and Vivek put his little little hand like in the camera and kind of did one of these little like uh, wishy-washy <laughs> signals. And people were like, what the hell is that annoying thing? But, you know, you saw, as you did uh, on a few occasions, DeSantis look out of the side of his eye uh, and kind of stumble even more. There's this awkwardness that is so evident in what Ron DeSantis does. Um, that mm-hmm. best exemplified by the horrible hand raise after he looked at both sides to see how people <laughs> the room was playing on on like whether you're going to pardon trump um that was just awful and and like did, did you see vivek at that point lick his finger and put it into the room <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> to that's mock Ron, that, that is attractive which was totally appropriate vivek totally owned himself um it's not necessarily the self that i am rooting on sometimes i do when he wants to abolish a bunch of federal agencies awesome um but mm-hmm. a, a lot of times i don't uh root him on but like he exuded that kind of absolute um i never uh, I, I know everything i have all the confidence <laughs> in the world i know myself desantis doesn't uh desantis has a lot of uh good answers which he performed or delivered in a pretty stiff and uh, and wooden way but all that is to say like that kind of that ghost of trump still weighs heavily in the room and the people who nikki haley did have a i think a, a good debate for nikki haley um it's just that that and you know i think that's also played out in the uh 538 uh post game uh polls that they've done of people watching it and how their their uh, attitudes shifted towards the candidates she really rose above that lane, right? The normie politician lane of Pence and Christie and Tim Scott and the other ones. She did much better than all of those, according to that. And that makes sense. But that lane is small. That lane is 15% of the Republican vote. That's it. There's nothing to suggest that that's going to grow to even 20 or 25%. And that's just nothing. That is, that is in the same Jeb Bush lane from 2015 and 2016. So they can do well. 
But that part of the Republican Party, which occasionally says things that I agree with, um, is still functionally dead as presidential material. The, the presidential electorate wants rando outsiders lobbing absolute fucking bombs on people. That's what they're going for. So we'll see more of that, I still think. Yeah. Nikki Haley definitely won, positioned herself well to be that third candidate, the choice of normal voters who might be looking for someone who's not a wild man. In other words, if the Republican Party gets an entire DNA replacement, she's right there. <laughs> and, and she, I guess, nudged out. And it just boggles my mind that the state that is providing normal mainstream politicians is South Carolina. But That's I guess hilarious. she edged out Tim Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right about the Vivek and the hand motions. He won the mime primary as well. You should have had a striped shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He walked against the wind and provided the wind himself. Haley was fine, was good. Uh, agree with you, um, Matt, that there's not that it, the market is not there for what Haley is selling. But I also don't know that other than the fact that, you know, 11 and a half million people or however many watch the debate, what's the argument about that would elevate her beyond one debate performance above this person, this Jeb Bush type person who's there to clean up whatever, um, to, to become that, you know, mythical third party, normal Republican. I don't know if I see it. I mean, it's all irrelevant at the end though, isn't it? Because none of these people are going to ascend, you know, I mean, there's obviously a number of things that can happen, but if things are exactly as they are now, you know, next year, there's going to be a Donald Trump versus Joe Biden election again. And um, this is the only time that I will not mock the Susan Sarandons of the world in 2004. So who said I'm moving to Canada because it's the closest I've been to saying something <laughs> like that if we have to look at these two fucking idiots again. But, you know, it's it, DeSantis is he's just not, he didn't perform very well. He seemed nervous, by the way, which I hadn't seen before. He seemed kind of, you know, hesitant and yet looking around. You know, one answer that I was like very annoyed at, you know, Vivek, I think it was right before Vivek does, is doing his Trump impression. And he does his American car, uh, American karma, American Dharma. Uh, was it? Uh, uh, what was the um, uh, American carnage? I'm sorry. I was thinking of the movie about Steve Bannon. Uh, American Dharma, but the when he said, uh, this is the, no, no, Mike Pence, you're wrong. This is a very dark moment in American history. Is it really a dark moment? Is it that dark? But then you get to De DeSantis, and one of these things that makes it a dark moment, one would presume, was the madness that enveloped us around January 6th, right? I We've been, you know, all over the place on this issue, uh, strenuously denouncing it, and then saying, well, Let's not say that this is Pearl Harbor or 9-11, but DeSantis has this incredibly bad answer when he's asked directly to the unbelievable frustration of both of the debate monitors who keep cutting him off and saying, you're not answering the question, which is what you're supposed to do, but there's only so much you can do, when he keeps on saying, no, no, let's not look backwards. Let's not look backwards to the mob <laughs> that was saying that the man on stage to your right should have been hanged. Yeah. That's not something we should definitely talk about. And the man who is going to be turn himself in tomorrow and get booked in a mugshot, this is the past. Let's move forward, which is just a dumb way of saying, I don't want to answer that yeah. question and get myself in any trouble. Yeah. You know, one thing that is remarkable about the debate and tells us where we are with this party is that 
Ron DeSantis vowed to invade Mexico, and we haven't noted it. No one else on stage seemed to note it. This seems, I don't know, kind of significant, unless the Mexicans invite you in for drug interdiction, which they do anyway (laughs) on a regular basis. He literally vowed to invade Mexico to get the fentanyl, because we all know that once you target one country's drug production, it never moves to another country. But this is the leading vote-getter on the stage, and it seemed like an unremarkable thing to say. Well, one reason... What if he said that I want to invade Mexico, not for the fentanyl, but for the territory. Then yeah. I would have been like, okay, let's, let's just expand I mean, our size a little bit. We could take Baja. I wouldn't mind having Baja. Yeah, that's, I think that's ours, uh, to be honest. Uh, the, I think the reason why it didn't really come up, the only way it would have come up is if the moderators in that kind of annoying, even Fox moderators, they always have to like ask a question about guns and global warming. You ever notice that? It's like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what, it's not that these are not worthy of talking about but it's like talking about every time within the first half an hour of every debate no matter what um even though it's a republican debate and that's not what the debate's going to be done on but um uh in this case it uh like um i'm losing my train of thought damn it Moynihan. Well, I th- <laughs> when they talked about global warming, didn't I thought it was just the best possible oh, yeah. way to frame it, to give it to a kid who says, "How do you convince people like me that the Republicans really do have a plan?" Now, you know, Vivek fuck that question in the ear, but I thought it was a pretty <laughs> pretty good attempt to put it the was. question forward. Well, but he was a, a, a kid that was a yaf kid yeah. uh, that went to Catholic university. It's like pretty bulletproof. But wasn't, uh, sorry, so wasn't to, that the to, one where Ron said where Ron said let's not do it this way? I want to yeah, answer I, the question. By yeah, he's the, the one who completely <laughs> exploded that that but uh, effort he was the, correct uh, too in that moment because it was like you know believe believe in uh, uh, global warming or not kind of thing it's like mm-hmm. stop it and i kind of yeah. get that and i think it resonated no what i wanted to say uh, earlier before i uh, brain froze is that every single candidate wants to invade mexico tim scott when he uh, his mm. opening campaign speech is like yeah i'll send the military to mexico vivek is like day one we're gonna go in there in mexico donald trump two days ago said naval blockade of latin america naval <laughs> Blockade and, and, of no, Latin America. Yes, and we mentioned this the other day on on uh, Megan Kelly's show. Is that he, he also suggested bringing back enemy combatants for the Sinaloa Sinaloa drug cartel? It's like, yeah, that, there's. I didn't see any problems with that in the past. We can do that with people in Mexico now. It'll be total totally work. But no, it's it's this this kind of madness doesn't even. I mean, was there? Because I had this on in the background, and it started becoming like white noise or like, you know, and I started primal screaming during it because I couldn't take it anymore. But I'm pretty sure that no one mentioned the insane Trump idea of a 10% tariff on everything coming into the country. Did I, I didn't, I didn't see anything um, or uh, hear anything of it. Because that would have been very, very instructive because what happens in, you know, populist economics, it's like the worst type of economics. It's in completely idiotic in every way, but it actually does rally people because they don't know anything about economics. And it's kind of difficult to say like, well, you know, if we keep everybody out by making everything expensive, then they'll just buy our stuff, which is not a thing that actually exists because you need all that stuff to make our stuff. And that would have been pretty instructive to to listen to people uh, respond to one of the most deranged policies of a person um, in Donald Trump who has lots and lots and lots of deranged economic But policy. it's also a gut check of where the Republican Party is, right? Because Trump has pulled pulled Correct. them in, and Trump supporters have pulled them in a different direction on trade in particular. And uh, Vivek would be an interesting person to watch because similar to his global warming agenda hoax, 
Um, he's always described his economic policy as America first 2.0. Like, oh, okay, so that's going to be just like Trump, right? Even shittier than one point. Uh, but no, as he said to us when uh, he came on uh, with me and Moynihan, and as he has said elsewhere, um, dropping out of the TPP was a, a terrible mistake, um, and that we should have yes. trade deals that exclude China. Now, of course, he wants to ban American companies from doing business in China. That seems totally normal. Um, and easy to do. Uh, so like there's weird wrinkles to it, but they would have been an interesting divide and it's a shame they didn't uh, talk about it. Well, yeah. And, and to that, Matt, when he did say that to us, and I don't know if I mentioned this at the time, probably didn't because he is a very fast talker and he moves on very quickly and we had a limited amount of time with him. But that is the libertarian version of this, by the way, when you talk about free trade and they're, you know, get behind Donald Trump and they say, well, that's, those deals are not real. That's free managed trade, I mean, trade man. time. It's managed trade. It's not real trade. And it's the it's the libertarian version of it's not real Marxism. <laughs> it was never been tried. And it's like, no, it that is what trade is. It's going to be managed. And they can't have this unfettered free trade. So come back to Earth and let's have a real conversation about it than rather punting it and saying, well, that's not real trade. Vivek does that when he's like, oh, I, I love TPP. And I like trade in the past, but you know, it's these little tiny things that make it different from no, no, no. That's it's all horseshit. And if if you know, if he was as successful as you know, without Donald Trump, I suspect he probably would be. And as Mike said, those comparisons of what Vivek has said, and you know, at one point Christie said, "I've read your book," and you said the opposite. He said, "No, I didn't." No, he actually did. Yeah. And that's the point. You just deny it, deny it, deny it. No one's going to really check it because there's such a farrago of bullshit. He code switches, doesn't he? One of, yeah. <laughs> one of my one of my biggest annoyances with, uh, let's say, the media, but our national conception. So we look back on the Trump era, and we're correct to be absolutely appalled by everything that happened around January 6th. But then if you go back to one of these lists, and CNN has put some together, and every news organization, the worst things that Trump did, and they're all of a verbal nature. They're all of these yes. horrible, insensitive things correct. he said. It's like, well, are you saying that his policies weren't that bad? Because actually, we can have an argument, I think, a little bit about the ta tax policy that I think was uh, oversold as a horror for the economy. It was more like we didn't need stimulus then. But the tariff policy was so bad, and there are economic papers saying this, but the fact that no one knows this, exacerbated by the fact that Biden left in a lot of his tariffs, so we only have yes. two parties, um, yes. and if the second party, if the corrective doesn't correct it, it must be good. There's just no understanding or knowledge. I mean, I'm probably stupid to think that Americans are actually going to vote on something like tariffs rather than the feeling of screw those Chinese and their imports, but it is, it's just appalling to me. It makes it, it I'm so aggressive that it's not just tariffs, if it's every part of the Trump agenda, some of which wasn't a disaster. I mean, on Tucker, he was talking about washing machines. He actually made some <laughs> rules around consumer products that maybe made sense. But there's so much actual substance that was so horrible, we never even get to it. It's like, okay, so he insulted that journalist for the New York Times. That's much yeah, more yeah, important yeah. than tariffs, which affects yeah. everyone and robs so many Americans of income. Well, the 10% the thing is, is so colossally stupid that it's the one thing that I think could actually, you know, jostle people a little bit. Because when you talk about trade, it is a very, very complicated thing, which is why I think all teenagers become Marxists because you know, he isn't sharing everything better. Well, yeah, sounds great. But the actual mechanics of it are too complicated to deal with. When you talk about 10%, all you have to do is respond in one way in one sentence. Everything becomes 10% more, more expensive. 
Do you like that or not? Because that's what's going to happen. And if it's like the little things like, you know, we're going to bring the aluminum smelters back. We're going to bring steel manufacturing back. We don't need that steel. We're going to actually replace it with our steel. This is actually something so deranged and so ill-considered. And by the way, as I pointed out on, on the show the other day, is that the two people are in the room with him at Bedminster are fucking Stephen Moore and Larry Kudlow, who made careers on being free traders. Yeah. And just have no principles whatsoever and are complete fucking rats, both of them. Well, I I wanted to talk a little bit about one specific aspect of the debate and perhaps pivot to to some of the events that we are watching old in Georgia, or at least waiting to see unfold. Um, There was a moment where they talked specifically about Mike Pence and his decision not to do as Donald Trump instructed. Uh, on the on January sixth of twenty twenty one, um, and there was a robust discussion about this, as has been alluded to already. But there were two things about it that were of interest to me, and this this broader point. I have uh, perhaps complicated feelings. In that moment, I thought this was Pence's best moment, and perhaps Christie's best moment as well, although it elicited a, a torrent of boos from the <laughs> crowd and a bunch of groans. Um, I, I, I suspect that even if these are people who genuinely, generally dislike Donald Trump or perhaps partial to some other candidate on stage, most of them aren't really interested in hearing Chris Christie badger Republicans over January 6th, appropriately or not. I'm not going to say anything about that right this second. But while I think that both of those men had good things to say in that moment, I find myself in a weird quandary because I also think that Vivek makes... Uh, a poignant point about the criminal prosecution of a whole lot of people now um, who happen to be in the opposition party. Um, And the fact that the appearance here is pretty unseemly. Now, that doesn't suggest that Donald Trump didn't do things that were wrong. Um, It doesn't suggest that he didn't do things that were wholly inappropriate and perhaps even break laws. And we'll have to see how the cases proceed and what evidence is brought to bear. But it does seem to me that there is something worth being concerned about there. And there was a specific moment where Christie and Vivek were talking about um, the, Christie said something about um, whether or not Donald Trump violated the law is somewhat immaterial here. Like we'll find out the specific thing is kind of conduct. Um, And while I appreciate that distinction, I do think that the general legal situation and the fact that we are watching unfold criminal prosecutions of not only the former president of the United States in four different places, um, but a whole lot of people who were perhaps tangentially connected to some of the things that were going on, at a minimum, it makes me pretty uncomfortable, even while we try to find the humor in some of it. So I'm curious about your perspectives on that exchange broadly and about the circumstance that is unfolding right now. Well, I think even Christie made a little bit of a nod to the disquiet that you expressed when he said, no matter what we think of uh, some of the prosecutions, the actual underlying behavior, and he's trying to appeal to a conservative who we've all put our finger on, probably doesn't exist or exists in sufficient number to win him the election. But I think it was mostly talking about the documents. That behavior is horrid. We cannot stand for that behavior. And so thinking about, yeah, you should, we should really be a little bit worried about the principle of going after political uh, 
politicians after the fact and indicting people who are tangentially involved. I defer to the internal debate among two of the founders of Lawfare, Jack Goldsmith, Ben Wittes, and Jack Goldsmith, who, you know, is a former federal, uh, former assistant attorney general and is a senior fellow at Hoover, writes in many places, but you probably read his uh, New York Times op-ed, the prosecution of Donald Trump may have terrible consequences, and he lays them all out. And all Wittes says is, I agree with everything Goldsmith says, but I'll just add this one sentence, the alternative is worse. So thank you, Donald Trump, for putting the, us in that position, but that's my position too. We really have to worry about this. We have to really worry about over-prosecuting our political rivals, but the alternative, i.e. not doing it, and I'm not talking about the Alvin Bragg indictment, I'm talking mostly about, well, somewhat the RICO, but the Smith and the uh, documents indictment, not bringing the prosecution would be worse, and we got to live with that. I think the right. I, go ahead, Matt. Uh, just on the Alvin Bragg indictment, um, I am ta- I will talk about that just in this one sense. Um, uh, I've spent the last uh, few days going through the polling numbers um, throughout the duration of this campaign, and there is basically one really big event um, that changed the trajectory of the GOP primary race, and it was the Alvin Bragg prosecution. It is unmistakable. It was. Basically, Donald Trump was polling at around 45%. DeSantis was around 29%. Um, pretty consistently, matter of months. Um, that uh, indictment comes down. Donald Trump gains eight points. DeSantis loses eight points. It goes from a 15 to a 30-point lead overnight. Stayed there ever since. It is the thing that happened. And it was the most unfair, most creatively you know, legal interpretation um, kind of it just irrelevant to mm-hmm. the stuff that matters of the way that uh, Trump conducted himself. I don't doubt that he breaks laws for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, different laws, different states, um, and that he lies all the time, which is going to be a big problem. As Clark Neely pointed out, I think, in a Cato blog post that's worth looking at. Um, uh, but wow, that's, that is the most irresponsible one, not just because of the effect of it, um, uh, the effect of it, I think, sort of illustrates the irresponsibility of it. Um, but we should have a higher standard for uh, roping in ex-presidents and current politicians. We should be treat this with some trepidation. Um, and I'm with you, Mike. Like I, I, I don't like it. It makes me feel bad. I don't like um, the RICO uh, statute in general. RICO statutes, federal or state, um, in general. And there's plenty about the Georgia. Uh, prosecution. Ken White of Pope Hat fame, former guest on this show, um, who can be uh, a cuss uh, in different locations. He wrote a very good uh, essay. I'm being charitable. He wrote a very good essay on his Substack, um, talking about his own sense of disquiet. And he's someone who hates Trump, just hates, hates, hates him. Um, but talked about how the indictment was overreaching and sloppy and unfair, and it needlessly conflated um, uh, various aspects. So, uh, yeah, I have that sense of disquiet. His conduct needs to have some kind of sanction. Um, and I don't know the best way to get there. I know that Andy McCarthy of National Review and some other conservative legal people have said the sanction was available to you. It was the second impeachment and you guys ganked it. You just blew it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Matt, this is, a, this is a hypothetical, but let me ask you, what's your instinct say? Politically, are those numbers any different if the order of the indictments was different? I don't know. What, uh, if, what if Bragg was fourth? I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I presume that there would be some rally around the flag type of thing or, you know, rally around the defense. His, him, him saying, look, um, they're coming after you. They just got me first is is 
both powerful and bullshit or both bullshit and powerful um and i think <laughs> powerful I, bullshit uh <laughs> and i think it, w- it would have well you saw giuliani said that when he was like as i said as donald trump said if they come after you they're gonna come after rudy giuliani <laughs> it's like it's not it's not me it's Rudy giuliani yeah. it's the shitty uh half insane former mayor of new york but i look i think that if it was in a different order it probably would make much difference because most of the people i talk to about this who aren't in the position that we're in paying attention to this stuff paying close attention to it just know that they're indictments and they make up their mind depending on whether they're trump people or not trump people and they say god look how bad this guy is they're not looking at the details of the brag indictment which are so you know weak and kind of sketchy in so many ways the thing that is kind of scary about it is that, you know, I've, I've said this over and over again, that we, that I personally have said everybody who goes into the Capitol on January 6th should be arrested <laughs> and, uh, you know, be sanctioned in some way in the same way that I think someone goes into a Nordstrom's in LA should probably be sanctioned and arrested too. I'm not sure if Just for are. going into Nordstrom's. <laughs> you mean to shoplift or just to shop? <laughs> yeah. Wait, are there shoplifters? <laughs> oh no, I just, I hate the store. Yeah. I think it's a dump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, uh, see, I just think it's so common now because Nordstrom is just getting targeted every day that that's what we think. Uh-huh. But um, the January 6th thing is actually interesting. And we had a really interesting conversation about it with Laura Bazelon, uh, something we posted last week that Camille and I did on stage with her in Philadelphia about some of the, po- the, the political nature of some of those prosecutions. And then it kind of gets you thinking in general beyond the political element of it. And I do, do believe that there's obviously a different kind of, you know, um, sense when you're, when you're prosecuting political enemies and you have more of a reason to do so. And there's a long history in a lot of countries of that going poorly. But when you, you see, this is what happens in prosecutions all over the place, political or not. They bring insane charges, squeeze people to death, you know, make them think they're going to go to jail for 40 years and then make them flip on people. Yeah. I mean, the way these prosecutions often happen is now we're seeing this in the political context and it outrages us. This happens all the time and it's always outrageous. It happened, with, I, it happened I, with teachers who are cheating on standardized tests under the same RICO yes. laws. And I don't know if, I don't know if Ken White, Pope Hat, <laughs> young thug fan, but you get plenty of rappers. I mean, he yeah. is a bit of a thug. So <laughs> he's a middle-aged I, I am thug a young fan. thug fan. Mike's <laughs> Uh, Young Thug is is one of the most high quality and influential. Maybe that's why he blocked you, uh, rappers of the last uh, decade and a half or so. Um, so I, I'm a big fan, and I am following his case closely. And I believe we've talked about it a few times on this podcast. We, yeah, we talked about it with Laura Bazelon, didn't we? Camille was stuck about that, and we got a lot. We got a bunch of emails, and one from our cop friend at the NYPD in the NYPD, uh, objecting to our saying, "Well, you know the rap lyrics," and well, he's like, "Well, I, you know, oftentimes I, I think they're I also have said, and, and you know, I'm a fan, so you know, it is what it is, and I don't know all the details of the case, but he's almost certainly guilty of something. So <laughs> related to this, oh, sure. merch. Well, if he's so, not, that yeah. would hurt his cred, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's called Young Thug. <laughs> it was it was like when uh, when what's his name's brother got uh, convicted yeah. of uh, murder. Well, his, his rap name is well, his C label. Murder. His label mate who was also <laughs> on trial and pled out and is now a pariah in the hip hop community in in large sections of the hip hop community. His name is Gunna. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Gunna, Gunna, <laughs> Gunna, and Young Thug uh, facing criminal prosecution for conspiracy and murder, among other things. By the way, did anyone in in this? Because I have the what I saw was was limited. I didn't I didn't watch the whole thing. I didn't have enough time. 
to do both the debate and Donald Trump on Tucker. I presume to be more of the same thing. But I watched a little of it. And one of the funny things, and, and I think you guys probably watched a lot more than I did. One of the funny things I noticed that was Donald Trump was considerably less crazy than Tucker. Yeah. Yeah. In, it, it was it, when he was like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein murdered. He was like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. He's like, I mean, he was going to prison for life and, you know, he probably just wanted to kill himself. And then the other thing when he was talking about January 6th, and, he, and he's like, you know, it's a bad combination of people having too much hatred and feeling like they've been aggrieved. And I was like, wait, what? Is he? I know he doesn't mean that. Or he's saying it in a weird way where he's like, you know, they, they're right to be angry and aggrieved. But it actually didn't. It sounded fairly rational. And Tucker was the one who sounded completely bananas. Or did I miss other bits of that that were not in the Twitter clips. Oh, no, there was no pushback to any of these. And it just goes, I think it shows how conspiracy theory works. Even if you have only like a 10% overlap with a fellow conspiracy theorist, because um, yeah. Trump and Tucker dis disagree on so much. We know that Tucker doesn't even agree with any of Trump's theories of why the election was stolen, mm. but he didn't push him on that. But even if you have the smallest amount of agreement with a fellow conspiracy theorist, this guy's my guy, right? But yeah. like when it comes to, you know, fights inside the uh, the classics department or forget that, just like the editorial board of the American Prospect, if you think the uh, maximum tax rate should be 32 and he thinks it's 31, that's it. You're not invited to the wedding anymore. <laughs> but I love the fact that also that, you know, these people are kind of talking about policy in Wisconsin in, in some way, and then sometimes they're not. And it's like, you know, you're getting something out of it, and people are being polled by 530 and say, who did, who did the best and who did – and then, you know, you flip over to, to uh, Tucker on X or on Twitter – and he's talking about Jeffrey Epstein. It's like, man, he's really gone around the bend. I mean, this is the issue that you want to end on with this interview. It's like, so was Jeffrey Epstein brutally murdered or was he just kind of murdered? I mean, it was just like a totally bizarre exchange. I feel like that there is that you have some responsibility as a person who's interviewing, uh, interacting with someone who's aspiring to be the president of the United States. Um, it doesn't mean that every question has to be like X, Y, and Z. We had fun with Vivek um, and and like uh, went down mm -hmm. some weird rabbit holes just for the the hell of it. Um, because you want to, you also want to bring out someone's personality. But you have some duty, I think, to kind of cross examine even the people that you tend to like a whole lot. You know what Tucker Carlson did, and I I, I will confess to watching zero of this. I've read about <laughs> it. Uh, Jacob Solom is very scrupulously. Fair over a reason to described in a pretty funny column, but on at least two occasions, Tucker asked him, used his precious Reportedly. time with <laughs> the former well president and um and uh, uh and the future president uh, from jail, Donald Trump. And it's like, uh, you know, don't you think that they might kill you? He asked him yes. on oh, did he say on that? two yeah. different occasions. Like, aren't you worried that I mean they've already done this? So I mean, what's to stop them from you know, you know, killing you again? It's the deification of Tucker. Who's the they? Doesn't matter. <laughs> They're going to kill you. It's incredible. Like, like what answer? What are you trying to get even with the answer there? Well, Matt, keep in mind this is somebody who you know at the end of his Fox career started talking a lot about the JFK assassination. And then with RFK Jr. has done interviews with him where he talks about the assassination of RFK and JFK. And they're just, you know, nodding heads at each other, agreeing that it was the deep state or some, you know, dark CIA conspiracy. I mean, he's really, really gotten into that, that frame of mind. And I think it was like, you know, he was penned in, in a way, and he's actually said this too, by Fox. He's like, now I can say what I want. It's like, actually, that's not a good idea. 
it was it was better when you actually couldn't say what you wanted because I, I, I'm starting to realize that he's gone completely mad, mm. and I, I don't think that's that's wrong. I think he's gone completely. I used mad. to criticize Maybe. him for saying, uh, "You're not allowed to." Say, well, of course, you're not allowed to say that, right? That's a, a famous thing to do. Um, and and I, in general, when people use that formulation, I say, "No, you can actually say it. Just be brave. You know, call bullshit and say say your thing." But actually, in his case, Moynihan, I think it might be right. He wasn't allowed to say every crazy thing that occurred to him over the years. Yeah. He's got a lot of pent up frustration. It's coming out now. I th- yeah. Who's the guy that he keeps on? Ray Epps. That's my oh, yeah. one. And now they're suing him, right? Do you do you think? Well, first of all, maybe the deification. Do you think they're they are going to kill you? He he just meant non-binary people. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it. it was one right. It was one specific one non-binary yeah, person. We have his yeah. picture. It's Ray Epps. Um, <laughs> do you guys think it, it would? Mike Pascal, we're going to get sued for calling Ray Epps non-binary. That now. man is binary. <laughs> that man's a real American. Um, He's but very yes, binary. Yes. Do you think that there's any, not internally, but do you think the market will respond well to just <laughs> any conspiracy theory or any amount of wackadoodlery that Tucker espouses? Um, no. It, okay, so where, no. well, how does he find the limit and what do you think is the limit? He seems savvy. He seems savvy enough to know. First of all, I don't think he believes this stuff. So he seems savvy enough to know how far to push it. But right now, we've just put our finger on a bunch of things he's saying that are crazy. Well, I mean, we live in an economy now, thank God, by the way, that you can actually make your own living and get to that limit and not, I mean, used to be if you get to that limit, you get fired from Fox and you're kind of shaking your tin cup and you might get a column at human events or something. <laughs> but now you can make money on Twitter or wherever it is X and, you know, get, getting some of that revenue sharing or starting a Substack like we do. Um, but yeah, I, I think that in the past you see like John Birch stuff had a very, very brief moment. And that moment was kind of reflected in American foreign policy where people were going a bit crazy about the Soviet Union, rightfully so. And they went in their hostility towards it, towards these kind of, you know, weirdos. And then they kind of, they had headquarters in Appleton, Wisconsin for a very, very long time to this day, actually. But they stopped being a thing. And people, you know, try to give the credit to Bill Buckley and National Review for writing them out of the movement. But I thought they, I think they were kind of writing themselves out of the movement because when you go to a certain point, everyone's like, yeah, there's commies everywhere. And then what the Birch Society says, you know, Eisenhower's a communist. He's actually in league with, and then people are like, okay, well, that's actually fucking insane. <laughs> and there is a moment for a lot of people you get to that, oh, actually, that's fucking insane. The JFK stuff has been so normalized by idiots like Oliver Stone and Hollywood, et cetera, that I think 70% of Americans believe in that conspiracy, which I believe to be totally, completely false. And he was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, which makes total sense. But people believe that. But if he goes further and further, and people tend to believe the Epstein thing too, yeah. which I find... Very, very odd and troubling because the mechanics of it don't make any sense. Well, they well, don't think- understand the competence of the New York correctional <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, facility. Exactly. <laughs> Amazingly competent. I think, I think, I mean, with the Epstein thing, there's the cameras are off. It's like, have you ever seen the fucking countdown clock on a subway? It's like three minutes. And I was like, how long is three minutes? I thought it was three minutes and it's 13. Nothing works in New York. You have to understand that to understand this uh, uh, Epstein shit. There had been an anomaly or two in the Epstein case before the suicide. So like get that plus he's with the powerful people. But this is the problem, I think, and where Tucker is eventually going to go if he hasn't gone there um, already. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's the classic one is that the, 
you will get purchased by by veifying centers of power. So Davos, mm-hmm. man, you know they, um, right. Bill, it's Bill not Gates, one person who could sue you. Bill Gates is out there buying <laughs> a farmland. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. So, like, if you if you center it on on actual centers of power, and you have a couple of, of occasions where powerful people anomalous things happen to them, they get off with something that they wouldn't have otherwise done. Then you've got that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, also, when you have things, and this is uh, apropos of the JFK assassination and UFO files and other things, when you have overclassification, the government still holds things back for whatever stupid reason um, yeah, yeah, to cover course, their asses uh, yeah. 70 years later. That's just this overhang. It's going to build that. But uh, you're going to start saying crazy things. So Tucker Carlson, I think it was this week in Hungary, in Hungary, of course, he's giving a talk in front of at least 11 people. Um, at like some uh, outdoor. Three of them were Rod Dreher. Outdoor, I found out from Rod Dreher's uh, Twitter feed, and he's like, "They hate Hungary because Hungary is a Christian nation." Like, first of all, who the fuck is they? And second of all, do some reading, just a little bit of reading before you go to Hungary for the seven. They hate Poland too? for the seventy-fifth time. Poland is actually a Catholic country. Hungary, where I lived for three years, um, is has much, much, much less religiosity something like uh 17 of hungarians go to church once a month as opposed to in new york city in gomorrah itself 35 percent go every week um like what are you even fucking talking about but like get in your head uh get in your mind who the they is and then being all mad at hungry for being christian it starts to look pretty crazy and where this goes if it's all about cosmopolitan international elite they people doing secret things to manipulate power to create these unequal outcomes and these bad rich things it's it's only going to go one direction um uh and it's only going to and that is you know the yeah. the direction as you mentioned the other day the um the uh, Jerome Tuchelli book, it, 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 <laughs> was it always or usually begins with yeah. Ayn Rand? The version Oof. of this is it always ends in anti-Semitism. Yeah. That's just inevitable. It always ends with the Jews. So It yeah. does. <laughs> I, I don't mean no, I, I, I mean, a positive thing. I know how you meant it. It's Moynihan, a very, I'm very watching, bad thing. I'm watching the class yes. for you. Yeah. And I just want to say this, by the way, as... Yeah, no, I'm going to leave it. But I just want to say this. As somebody who was at a event last night where... um uh, me and the person I was uh-huh. with were the only non-Jews there, and and I, we surveyed the room. Uh, the only goyim, and it was uh, it was uh, fantastic. I felt like I was let <laughs> in to a secret society meeting, and it was great. Well, I found out what's going on. What you learned? What's going on? Oh, I can't tell you. Uh, it's it's going to be a subscription only thing on. X what are they going to do Tucker. to us? Oh, they are going to do. Uh, by the way, they are all the nicest you, people. You have world. to say and that. You have conspiratorial. They're just nice yeah. people. They, they, you, they allowed the go. I, look, do you notice that <laughs> I'm reading off a prompter? They set it up here. And the they you don't is, want to get Kanye. You know, the elders um, of Zion. <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> um, as a uh, card-carrying uh, Philo-Semite who wants to go drink uh, for his birthday, I'm going to go do so now. And uh, thank you, Mike Pesca, for coming. And I imagine you guys will have <laughs> more interesting conversations. Happy birthday. Me. Happy birthday, think, Michael right? Moynihan. And Happy everyone, you should Thanks, everyone, you should know that Michael Moynihan spent a good chunk of his birthday wrestling with Fifth Column Audio for you yeah. people. Six we, we got hours, hours. we got plenty of money. Six hours. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. 
And we are rid of Moynihan, who is off God. to have drinks or, you know, some sort of weird birthday orgy. Either way, good for him. Congratulations. Glad to glad he's healthy and still in the land of the living. Uh, but I am still here with Mike Pesca and Matt Welch. Uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you something for a couple of weeks now. Um, actually, a little longer than that. You had a podcast Sorry, that going you on launched um, called Not Even Mad. And your co-hosts, Virginia Heffernan and Jamie Kerchick. Has Virginia been on the podcast before, Matt? Ours? No. Yeah, I don't think no, so. No, it was but mine. I think she I, and I, I, it was she and I recorded time. something together at some point in the past, I think. Yeah, but not for um, a fifth column. Yeah, not for fifth column. Maybe it was for Newsweek. And I think we, we enjoyed one another's company in that context. It was a little while back. Um, but Mike, that podcast ran for... What, like 10 episodes? Something like and 10. Then, yeah, 10 big no ones. More. Could, you, could you talk to me a little bit about what happened there? Because um, the show was supposed to show people who were thoughtful and interesting and friendly and respectful to one another, but who disagreed yeah. on important things and could still model like how to have constructive disagreement, but something happened. The perhaps overly reductive sentence is the demise of not even mad was that my two ho to uh, my two co-hosts got a little bit mad at each other. <laughs> now I don't want to throw anyone <laughs> under the bus, but you know, this whole idea, this is to me uh, coming up when I did roughly when, well, when you guys did was the idea of people having cross political pollination and conversation was not only not rare, it was, seen as necessary, de rigueur, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't put, put together a political panel without different points of view. It's why political panels existed. And mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I love a great political discussion, but they started trending and then trending more. And then they got to, you know, there were almost zero podcasts left that weren't three guys agreeing with each other. You guys are an exception. And I also have to say, th there are, little bits of oasis you might not you might disagree with me but when you know how to listen to say the slate political gab fest there's enough disagreement where say john dickerson will at least give you a good version of what a republican thinks and mm. plots david plots is a little heterodox and emily's listening to me that's worth it but listening to the editors of National Review, and then listening to the commentary podcast, and then listening to Pod Save America, and I could listen to a lot more. All of those are podcasts in my rotation. All of them I like, but they never encounter the differing point of view. And so I was just saying to myself, I just need to get John Pod Horitz or whoever, Noah Rothman, from this podcast, throw him in the middle of Pod Save America, and that would be a so much better podcast. So I tried to do it, and what I realized was, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to write. I don't want to say that this one experience is a total stand-in of the media or the culture, but it is really hard. It is much harder than I realized mm -hmm. to have political disagreement that doesn't leach into and bleed into the personal. Now, first of all, people who are really dis the way to get along if you disagree with someone politically is just not to talk about politics. Okay, that's so a sports podcast uh -oh. where one's a conservative, one's a liberal, that could work. But the deal is they just would not talk about politics. So they'd only ever so occasionally and know they would get mad at each other. It just is so socially overdetermined the silos we're going to be in, all the incentives lining up to not get along with the other side. And I think it played out. It's, it, it's, 
naturally, you're just not naturally going to get political experts who are actually good friends in real life, who have terribly different, very divergent political views. There'll be small differences and fun podcasts can be made of that. And in fact, I'm friends with, I'm friendly with Virginia. I knew her beforehand and the task was to set about, because when I worked for Slate and NPR, I was certainly much more in the progressive slash liberal space. It was easy for me, but I always had conservative friends and I loved talking to conservative thinkers. It was a little hard to go out and cast that conservative voice. And I thought, so I just thought Jamie was a great panelist, but socially speaking, um, I suppose, and I'm not exactly in this world, but there's just pushback out there, pushback of the kind, why didn't you, why did you let him get away with that? Or why didn't you argue more about this? And there's pressure to do that more. And one of the arguments can be, well, it's not even mad. You have to let the other person get their argument out. And the point of the show is not to mm -hmm. push back on every little thing, but you're held accountable by maybe people you do know, maybe just people who follow you on Twitter, when the people who follow you on Twitter or Substack are also your paying audience, that's an extra consideration. You don't want to piss off people or lower uh, your esteem in the eyes of your audience by not sufficiently fighting against these bad ideas. And this is, it's hard. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Do you, uh, uh, I, I feel like we all have observed this phenomenon. Like 10 years ago, it was different. 10 years ago, you could count on probably two hands the number of, for instance, cable television shows, even pre-podcast being a really big thing, uh, cable uh, TV shows where you could go and I would go on Chris Hayes' show with some regularity. And um, uh, there would be uh, Fox shows, certainly the show that Camila and I and Kennedy did on, on um, Fox Business Network, but that wasn't the only Fox place. And it wasn't just sort of that, you know, the Fox News Democrat uh, token that would go in. There were just were it was it was understood <laughs> that you're going to have this. CNN, you know, back then they had panels that weren't 85 people, and and occasionally there would be you know actual sort of disagreement. But it's almost non-existent right now. If you if you like close your eyes, squinch them shut, and try to think of where is the cable television show where I can predict to see people who disagree with each other in a way that's interesting um or just at all like really um uh, politically so uh to what do you attribute this presumed uh, shared sense of wow we just don't do that anymore i don't know why I think it's the fracturing of the media and the fact that there's no broadcasting. I see that the Sunday shows still try to assemble a panel of left and right and maybe center, but you could, you know, those people are doing it for the paycheck and maybe they could pretend to get along, but they certainly don't get along. And I would think that there was an era of crossfire, not the Tucker era, but maybe the uh, Evans and Novak or before then era where, from what I understood, there was a lot of comedy between those two people. And it doesn't, you know, Ford, Ford's best friend in the house being... Uh, Tip O'Neill. I don't want to romanticize that era. There was a lot wrong with it, and you know, certain voices were excluded. But I also think that it's either the argument about platforming or what's the impetus behind the argument about platforming. Hmm. But the fact that we have these discussions about how wrong it is to even entertain a different point of view, um, for a while, I really considered those arguments and. 
I thought about them and maybe there is something to be said about not platforming a person. I've come to believe that 99.9% of those arguments are hogwash. There's nothing to them. They're just anti-free exchange of ideas. Um, I've come to believe that with disinformation. You know, you could convince Mm -hmm. me there's something Mm -hmm. called disinformation, but now my default Mm -hmm. setting is whenever anyone talks about that, it's you just want the other side to shut up. And I'm shocked. I mean, I grew up at a time when, you know, Nazis marching in Skokie and all that was the Mm -hmm. ideal. And I'm just shocked how far (laughs) we've come. It wasn't well. It was bad to have Nazis. It's tolerating it. That's right. Tolerating it. I left out a key verb. Yes. Right. <laughs> I thought that was the default setting. I thought that I thought that if you're really having debates about should we let this person talk, you're having the wrong debate. Yep. But that debate is yep. seen as so much more legitimate, I think, than it should be. And one of the reasons it's seen as more legitimate is the debate about the debate is being hashed out in this fractured media where you only have to appeal to not even one side, a fraction of one side. I don't think that... Chris Hayes, my old friend who hasn't gotten in touch with me for uh, five years since I went through some trouble, I I don't think that that panoply of analysts who I was watching on MSNBC differs from each other by a, a tiniest bit of an inch. At least their public personas don't. And if they did, I think it would be interesting and I think it would just, it would probably cause internal internal strife amongst themselves or at the network? Let the strifes be of the ego type rather than disagreeing on policy type. I think that there's something to be said about the uh, market demand and where the market is incentivizing people. Uh, I think that we want, and it's not we on this podcast and not we, our listeners, uh, thankfully, it's one of the reasons why we I mean, we do this for ourselves, but it's really cool to have an audience who are weird people who don't agree with us. Um, and like, that's kind of one of the, one of the things that they all hold together is like, Hey, we should be able to have a normal conversation with abnormal people from all over the place. Um, that's nice. But I think the majority of media right now, especially sort of like hyper, uh, 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 involved or just, uh, uh, paying attention to the news media is about, palliative care <laughs> you know it's about it's about comforting yourself it's about licking your wounds yeah. um uh giving you a sense of like you're not alone out there um that uh the other side really is that evil um uh, yes. but you can you can sort of like be among your people right now um and that's just so different than it used to be and i have a hard time reconciling but i do want to um give a shout out here to one trend in the news culture that is going in the opposite direction, small individual single organization. And that's the New York times. And I say that, um, because uh, in part, um, <laughs> I think it was today or yesterday, the New York times opinion section, which we might recall had some, had some country tomps, uh, not long ago, back when Barry Weiss was leaving and Tom Cotton was going to do a thing and then everyone got all mad and how can you do this? Did a thing. They published yeah. Ann Coulter mm-hmm. about like immigration uh, in, within the last 48 hours. I'm sure a lot of people lost their minds, but also I think it's a statement of Joseph Kahn, their new executive editor who replaced the gormless Dean Baquet. Um, and Joseph Kahn is, does not have a big public profile, kind of keeps it tight-lipped and mum, but it's pretty clear from their pushback on a few 
different ways. And now also their editorial content. And I don't say this as a defense of Ann Coulter at all, um, but just the idea that that would happen was unthinkable two years ago, really. Um, yeah. And now it's rethinkable. Um, I think that the instinct is a good one. There should be places where you can expect to have, my God, even a Republican sitting senator maybe writing something in the opinion page. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the broader culture, the the broader trends are are exactly that. And it's fascinating that you like went in there to develop a, a product that you could control to some degree, right? And with people that you knew and could also influence and you like failed, sounds like. Yeah. It, with and the Times, by the way, I think it's also happening yeah. in their news pages. I think it's Salzberger. Mm-hmm. I mean, mostly. Oh. I've heard him. I don't know if you read the uh, big CP, the uh, Columbia journalism piece. It's too long. Or he was on, he did a, it almost always is. He, <laughs> uh, he did a good interview with uh, Sarah Isger uh, on The Dispatch and um, uh, Steve Hayes also. Really good. He should and talk to us. He should he really should. Should talk to us. He should talk to The Gist. He should talk to Fifth Column. Mm-hmm. But um, you could just see it in little things, like little stories where five, no, two years ago, the story about the Denver public schools getting rid of their security officer would quote four um, anti-police advocates saying, this is just the militarization of our schools. And then when they did get rid of their armed security guards and there were shootings in the schools and there was a, there were protests at the state Capitol, it turned the ratio of people who are explaining to readers of the New York Times why it was necessary to have these guards. There were four of them and one person objecting. And I see that in a lot of the coverage. I just read a story that seemed like exactly what you would want about the um, Wash U St. Louis clinic that Barry Weiss and the free press broke. The whole standing up to the bullies on the tra- of GLAD and others on the trans issue, which mm-hmm. which comes from the editor, but definitely comes right from now, Sulzberger, yeah. was... I think the right thing, the only thing to do and a statement and, um, you know, Coulter, she's going to be objected to because not because of her argument, because of who she is and past arguments. But that's why it's so interesting. This is Ann Coulter explaining these things and saying these things. There is a value to that. And, uh, New York times readers, or at least the ideal New York times readers, I think should understand that. And most of them actually will, not the loud ones, but most of them will. So it's good that the New York Times is, you know, getting a little more sensible and trying to reclaim some sort of mantle of explaining the world really as it is. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see this this thing playing out again yesterday where the Times publishes uh, an article and Glad responds by bringing these trucks again and and having essentially this demonstration outside of the building Uh, And the tweet that they posted yesterday was uh, about the day before yesterday, the New York at New York Times published yet another biased anti-trans article. This morning, we're at the New York Times headquarters holding headquarters, holding them accountable and holding them accountable means essentially telling them you're not allowed to say certain things and you're not allowed to have certain kinds of people write about these things. Um, And I haven't read this article, so I can't comment on it yet. But people who I know and respect um, who do, uh, who have read it, um, have said that like the previous article, that this was a well-researched piece of journalism um, that was published in the Times and not uh, a horrible screed yeah. um, against against trans people. And I do think that there's something about the the kind of maximalist over-response to anything that we don't like, um, that you are endangering our lives, that we're on the precipice of being murdered um, and genocided 
Um, the, you find that kind of response all over the place. This kind of histor- hysterical, over the top um, nonsense. And and I think you're absolutely right, Mike. And to put your finger on it, to the extent people are are doing that, and to the extent they're talking um, about the the inherent overwhelming danger of information and pain with a very broad brush. Like what actually concerns me isn't necessarily the issue that is ostensibly being debated. It is the conduct, which is vehemently um, anti-pluralistic. Um, it's anti-free speech. Um, it is promoting cultural values and norms that I find deeply distressing. And I will say for, for all of the kind of unfortunateness of your podcast, uh, Not Even Mad, kind of going away, like, I do think that there is a very real change in the culture afoot and a, a genuine appetite for something more robust and thoughtful as, you know, the political um, polls are shifting a little bit and the new kind of moderate consensus is emerging. Um, you know, the, the, the success of people like us, the, the ability of us to, to kind of have these independent quote unquote platforms, I do hate that word, um, but uh, to, to have them and to have them funded in different ways to put pressure on publications like the New York Times, because I don't think it's insignificant that someone like John McWhorter, for example, was over on Substack, like having success, was doing podcasting and other, and other content, having success, and then goes over to the New York Times. Same thing with David French, people who uh, not so long before, you know, it, it might have elicited protests to have them come join the editorial um, editorial team there. Um, it's it's uh, It's all pointing, I think, in a healthier direction. And if I look at that and also add into that, perhaps my more optimistic read on <laughs> most optimistic read on the can proceedings from last night and their debate without tr- Trump, um, I can at least hope um, optimistically that we're trending in a, in a positive direction and that there is a chance that saner heads will prevail. Um, but I don't know. I'm an optimist and I can't really help it. Camille, I, I, mean, I got to tell you that I just love the fact that you're back in California for like a week and a half. And you're already like just huffing the optimistic glue. Uh, <laughs> it gives me hope. I've been an optimist my whole life, basically until this podcast started. And I love the podcast. <laughs> it's not the podcast fault. I love it. It's kept me alive. No, no, barely. I, I found you. I found you at a low point, and I've been trying to drag you back towards optimism all along. And I will yeah. say, I've I've had some interesting encounters here in Northern California. I, the the other day, I was in some. I was under some personal distress, if I'm honest. I just was not having a great day. I was in the midst of just kind of navigating some things. And I was I was driving my new car, which is, I bought a Tesla um, now that I'm out here because the gas prices almost require it. Um, and I was, I'm going to admit something here. I was not really paying attention. And I kind of sort of blew through a cross rock. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for that or someone's going to come get me. But there was a young family <gasps> that was preparing to cross the street. <gasps> and dad... Dad, um, he went dad and he slapped the side of my car yeah, he did. Uh-huh. with his open hand. And I looked over and saw, you know, him, his wife and his kid. And, you know, he had to take a step to get there. So I didn't like literally almost murder these people, but it could have happened. And he screamed at me, it's a crosswalk. And he was, he was aggressive. And as he crossed the street, um, I wound down my window and I said, to him. Um, and as soon as I did, he, he sharp barked back at me again. It was a crosswalk. And I just said back to him, I am sorry. 
I am sorry. Um, it's one of those things where am I annoyed that this man is slapping my Tesla that I just got? Yes. Yes, I am, sir. Mm -hmm. This isn't okay. I got out of the car and I was, you know, upset looking at his handprint on the, on the pristine, uh, glossy black paint. And I could have been sufficiently angry that I just kind of went at him in the wrong direction. Um, but I instead kind of admitted, admitted my fault in the circumstance um, and have felt pretty good about it. Um, and that is one of two kind of surprising interactions I've had with people in California um, in, in recent weeks. The other well, was you when know, I, could I you had, you, you did have another option. You had another option being there in San Francisco. You could have just done a barrel roll outside of the car and blamed it on one of the driverless vehicles. <laughs> you could have just tried to frame the car. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Man, I did see one of those autonomous cars. And I, I mean, look, it is what it is. I'm generally in favor of innovation. Yeah. But I did see one of those autonomous cars have a weird not necessarily close call, but a very weird interaction with a pedestrian in the crosswalk. Oh, huh. And you're watching this car with no driver in it. Um, not even like the person who sits next to the drive to the empty seat who could possibly take control. I'm watching it kind of roll up to this lady and, you know, kind of slow roll, stop, and then continue on while she was in the crosswalk. She was in the right the entire time That's... and they were in a bad spot. But of course, look, I expect there to be errors that way in the same way I expect there to be human error. Um, but we're just not going to judge that same thing the, in the same way. To me, the so. optimism is that our institutions like the New York Times, you said, you know, when they hired French, when they hired uh, John McWhorter, you'd, ex you'd have expected there to be protests. There were. There were protests. Mm. I saw the protests on my X feed. It's just that the New York Times as one institution has said, okay. I hear your point, and yet we're still going to proceed. We're not going to be cowed. We're not going to make decisions in a defensive crouch. This is, the, this is what we're going to pursue. So that has changed. The New York Times also is an extremely successful, one of the only successful journalism institutions that has the ballast to do it. So when you're not beset by the anxiety that everyone else in the media world and the world world is beset by, maybe you have a little more leeway. Um, I just, I also wanted to say on that, on the protest of the trans articles, there's, it's plausible that, but you know, it's not like the New York Times, just because they did an article necessarily got it right. There are, I was open to the critiques. I thought they were, they didn't get anywhere. They were misleading. There were about a one word phrase in an Emily Bazelon column that was totally understandable mm -hmm. to call a patient, patient zero. But the giveaway, the tell for me was when they said, and this reporting was used in support of the Republican agenda. It was officially admitted into the record in Texas. And that's all you have to know. When you're objecting to journalism, or even in a fair attempt at journalism as, but the other side might use it, they might use these actual facts. You're not engaged in journalism. Yeah. You're engaged in, you're engaged in activism. And, you know, I do think for a time there was an absolute blurring of the lines between activism and journalism. I'm glad the New York Times has got it as, you know, said much more forcefully, we're not in the activism business. I wonder if the Washington Post is there, you know, it's not their current editor, mm. but their former editor still seems to have endorsed the postmodernism of what is truth and there is no truth. I mean, if our big <laughs> newspapers aren't in the, we are in the truth business, then they're in, or the facts business and that 
strongly correlates to truth, then they're in, I think, the wrong business. Oh, and one last podcast plug. New York Times mm-hmm. does have a podcast called Matter of Opinion, and it's getting better. It's yeah. people generally disagreeing, but they get along. They work in the same place. David French could talk with Michelle Goldberg, so it doesn't do what Not Even Mad does, and sometimes it takes two weeks to react to the news. Here I am giving notes, but that's a good that's a good podcast that is the exception to these three people agreeing type podcasts. One, uh, yeah, you should you should build them for the critique. You're giving them, <laughs> giving them great advice. Uh, one thing worth talking about, uh, and this is the very rare moment of agreement that I'll have with Margaret Sullivan, uh, press critic, uh, late of the Washington Post and now of the Guardian, I believe. Um, she just observes that uh, you talk about you know our great newspapers. We don't really have any anymore. We have two. Um, three mm. Wall Street Journal as well. The LA Times where I used to work um, is so withered. It is so withered. And so many cities have lost their newspapers. I'm not a nostalgic at all about anything in life. Uh, and I won't be about newspapers as much as I've loved them and have started them and worked for them my whole lives uh, and uh, have great memories of them. You have to move forward and do new things. But we, uh, it's worth acknowledging that there were places that were kind of locking down certain amounts of journalistic institutional memory that are just withering into nothingness and going away. Uh, Santa Barbara News Press, a place I knew pretty well for a lot of tangled reasons, went out of business. It's the oldest uh, uh, newspaper in California uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, and uh, that is tough. I'm looking forward to whatever replaces those things. Um, there isn't an obvious candidate for um, here is a way to make, you know, 25% annual profit margins by talking about local news and sports, which is what it was like for 40 years in that you're never going to see that again. Um, uh, And there is something that's lost in that process. It doesn't mean that you need to fix it by some kind of, you know, government fiat or something. Um, But it is worth acknowledging that's part of the context that we're in is that most of these places really, really are ailing and going bad. And it contributes to an overall pessimism of the genre and the product that it uh, creates, I think. Yeah. Sorry, Camille. Amen. Amen. we're, We're allowed to disagree here fruitfully, productively, respectfully. And Matt Welch, you're dead to me because you disagree, you scumbag. <laughs> exactly. Can't believe you. Um, well, uh, Donald Trump is supposed to be getting arrested like right now. Right now. Like, yeah. And I've it's got- It's happening like right now. And even even more threateningly to the Republic, I've got a 15-year-old trying to cook rice upstairs. So- <laughs> <laughs> And I said uh, arrested, I mean surrendering. So I'll let you go check, check out what's happening with your child. Um, Mike, I am so grateful for you joining us today. It's always a pleasure to hook up with you. And um, yeah, we will be back very soon to have greater discourse about a variety of things. I hope you will join us again, Pesca, especially when we uh, get together in New York in person. And I should tell people that next week I'm doing the I was wrong week on the gist. I check in on the things I was wrong with. And Camille's coverage of Amy Foster features prominently. He Amy wasn't Cooper, wrong. Amy yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Camille's, <laughs> Camille's coverage of uh, Amy Cooper features prominently. I was wrong on a couple of things. I think I own it. Maybe I own it in the least self-serving way I can. I don't know. But <laughs> thanks for helping me out with that uh, examination no, sure. of the soul. That's awesome. It was, it was a fun... It- it was a fun, great conversation, and it, it almost made me want to be wrong about something so I could have an opportunity to, <laughs> to own it, it in like? public. 
but I ain't been wrong yet, which is hitting, weird. Almost hitting those people in the crosswalk. Uh, you stand by yeah, that? Just, <laughs> even there, you know, I, I mean, was I wrong in a way? I was sorry, but I don't think I was wrong. Exactly. <laughs> that's different. I'd say that's different. I didn't hit them. You know, yeah. he thought you were I right could not have, to hit them. And that's true, yeah. but I didn't. Yeah. And that way, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. That's what I mean. See? If missing yeah. them is wrong, you don't want to be right. Number that's, one call when you're right. wrong. I certainly don't want to run them over. So I'm happy that I didn't ruin my Tesla that day. I mean, injure that family. You're both <laughs> Did you review the film? Do you, do you have that option? No, no, no. It's all oh, deleted. It could be a made up story. Listen, law enforcement, please don't come for me. My, my pristine driving record should remain intact. All right. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, all of you. Bye. We, we Bye. We know of new methods of attack. <laughs> <laughs>